As some of you might know, the job of preaching is one that often invokes a little bit of procrastination. Some of you have jobs that may invite this energy in, in your situation as well. Um, and in my uh, procrastination, but also wandering thoughts related to what I wanted to say, I found myself coming back last night to a couple of, of things. Um, one of which being a video that I'm not going to show you right now because it's too long. But it's a video of a sermon, of, of a um, funeral, sort of funeral remarks. Funeral remarks given at the memorial of a one John Lewis. And those funeral remarks were made by uh, now the, oh God, what is he, 93-year-old human that baptized me. His name is James Lawson. Um, in honor of black history, you should look up that name. And if you look it up on Google, you'll see a picture of a dude and then you'll see a picture of Martin Luther King <laughs> and they'll be sitting next to each other. Imagine when you're 12 and you realize that your pastor and Martin Luther King were friends. Things get really awkward after that. I went back and listened to these funeral remarks made by the pastor who baptized me. And he said something interesting. He said, John Lewis referred to the period between 1953 and 1973 as the nonviolent movement of America. The nonviolent movement of America. And, and, and Reverend Lawson said, not the civil rights movement. That is not what we called it while it was happening. And I, you know, I've heard, I heard this these funeral remarks live when they happened, right? I was, I like stopped my day to watch television, to watch these remarks. And when I heard it then, and I heard it last night, I was, I was struck. The nonviolent movement of America. And this reminded me of video footage that our own Barnabas Lynn played of an activist named Bracely Boggs, who said this interesting thing about nonviolence. Bracely Boggs said in this documentary, nonviolence respect the capacity for human beings to grow. It gives them the opportunity to grow their souls. And we owe that to each other. I love preaching exactly one time on, in, in Black History Month. One time. I don't want to go to somebody else's church and preach in Black History Month. I want to preach one time. I want to do it here. Because if I say some things that'll make you mad, at least you can call me and tell me so. Okay? Um, and so I wondered what kind of serendipity I was in for when in planning the schedule, Erina says you get to preach in Black History Month on the part of the Beatitudes that says, do not murder. Mm. Delicious. 
I could sit down now. I feel like it's Black History Month. Do not murder, in parentheses, black people. Is a whole sermon. That's it. That's the sermon. Let's reflect. I will say a little bit more, um, but probably not much more. <laughs> you may know or remember, thanks to Pastor Arena, that Jesus, at this point in this sermon that he's giving, um, the Sermon on the Mount, has just finished reminding this community on this mountain that they, together, the collective, are salt and light. They together are God's people, anchored by God's story that is continuing to be written and told through their collective lives. And as such, Jesus now begins to work his way through Torah, the story of God, the scriptures, in effect to reorganize the people, to say to them in some way, this is who we are together. This is the story that we continue to live even now, just as it has been told thousands of years ago. And so it feels fitting uh, that, that Jesus would start with a basic one. Don't kill people. Right? I mean, let's, you know, you know, we're going to be a people together. Let's like not kill each other. Cool. You've heard it said, that makes sense, right? It's, it's sort of a rule that we don't really like go around like, you know, it's your first day of work, you get the orientation, you know, welcome to Google. We just have a couple rules. First of all, don't kill your coworkers. Like, it's not like, that's not a thing. Because it's sort of like, an, it's, it's like a no brainer sort of, like don't kill people. So Jesus says, yeah, 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 yeah. We know about the prohibition. This has organized us since the Ten Commandments. However, and, not however, and, well, we're going to talk about anger. Mm. Now, that's different. Anger is different. And you know, at first, I didn't really love that Jesus said this, because in some ways, I like being angry. I like it. In fact, anger is important, friends. Anger is an extremely important emotion. It's so important that in my 20s, I discovered I had been angry my whole life, and it took a mentor to say to me, you're angry. And I was like, no, I'm not. I'm chill. I'm cool. She's like, nah, you're really angry. I'm like, what? And then she's like, for the next six months, you're going to come over to my house and sit on this couch and tell me why you're angry. I was like, but I'm not angry about anything. And then the next week, I came over, and I was like, you're not wrong. <laughs> anger is important. Anger is an emotion. It's basically like, like the, the physical equivalent to touching the hot stove, and then the nerves sort of fire up, and you're like, don't touch that. Anger is your body's way of encountering something and being like, that's not okay. That's not right. Something's off. And it's often a deep way, right? It's often a way that like does not fit with the way you see the world, right? Anger is important. And what Jesus does is Jesus gives examples. I love it. Some examples. So what kind of anger are we dealing with here? Because I think anger is helpful. Well, Jesus gives two examples. Number one, anger that comes in the form of insults, okay? Literally, 
in, if, if you translate the text in Greek, there's an insult, a specific insult that's tied to the word don't insult your brethren. It's raka, right? It's this insult that basically is meant to publicly shame someone. You only say it in public and you only say it to attempt to sort of deem that person out of the camp. That is the point of that insult in particular. It is a way to essentially bring communal public dishonor, okay? And then you have angler exemplified by the use of the term you fool, which comes from the proverb and the psalm, the fool says in their heart, there is no God. So basically, it's like, it's like a curse. You're literally cursing someone. You're saying to them, you're giving them a label that says to them, again, you don't belong. And it's not necessarily like a, I'm kicking you out, but it's sort of like I'm making sure people know that you're not good enough. I'm making sure that people, that, that there's a name attached to you so people understand that you are of a different class, a worse class. And this is the anger that Jesus is talking about, right? Jesus seems to be framing anger as actions meant to cast others off and cast others aside, either by trying to forcibly and publicly isolate them or by giving them a permanent label that will cause others to avoid, reject, and possibly harm them. And Jesus basically says that doing that is the same as murder. It's the same. Now I'm going to ask a question that I think is important to ask and answer, which is, is that kind of anger, like is, is, is Jesus just being hyperbolic? Is Jesus exaggerating? Is that kind of anger violent? Can it even be put on the same level as murder? Or is Jesus just trying to sort of make a point? And if, in fact, these actions are murderous, why would people choose them? Right? Why would people choose them? So, is this kind of anger violent? Well, Instead of just saying, yeah, and letting you figure it out, I would like you to consider something that we in America call the criminal justice system. Just for a moment. Is it violent to forcibly and publicly isolate people from human connection? Huh. It seems that that is the exact point of the system that we as Americans have. It is literally a system designed so that we, 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 you know, do a thing, which I'll talk about, and then we put people in a place over there, like on an island, that they can't escape forever. That's it. That's the whole thing. Especially in the past 50 years, when I think about the war on black people, I mean drugs, um, we have created the conditions that permit the complete devastation of people of color and of poor folks of all persuasions, simply by finding ways to criminalize their being. 
This sounds violent, right? And then we have the other thing that Jesus says, right? Giving people a permanent label that would cause others to avoid, reject, and possibly harm them. We don't have to even get another example. Just stay with the same system. I don't have this experience, but I listen to a lot of stories of people that have a really weird life once people know that you're a felon. That word alone, that word alone serves to basically take a, a collection of rights from people, the right to vote, the right to have a job, to have a place to live, to have government assistance in case you're struggling. All of those things get stripped away based on one label. And sure, you're not like kicked out of the camp or anything. You can still live here if you can get an apartment. Yeah, you can still get a job if someone will hire you. When Pastor Erina was working and doing ministry in prisons, I don't know what the numbers are now, but you know, the rates of people that end up going back to prison are staggering. Some of you know better than me, right? Well, I remember when, when, when Pastor Aaron talked, it was like in the 80s, that was the number, right? I'm like, 80% of people enter into this system and then, have, and then end up back in it again? 80% of people who end up being isolated come back and get a label and then end up getting isolated again? That's a cycle, friends. That is a cycle of violence. So why do we do this? Why do we do this? Well, I think we do this because there is a certain story that we love and that we hate. There is a certain story that we nurse. There is a certain story that the tyrants and all their friends love to tell. You know what that story is? It's a simple story. Creator has ordained scarcity. So you got to go take what's yours. Creator has ordained scarcity. And you got to go take what's yours. There's not enough. And God made it that way. There's not enough. Because you're not enough. Because God made you that way. So whatever you need, you got to go take by any means necessary. And guess what? So is everybody else. So you got to go take and you got to go fight. This is the story that the tyrants love to tell. And they love to tell it with everything they can. They will tell it to you in a Super Bowl commercial. You better watch out. They will tell it to you on the news. They will tell it to you anywhere. And this story, as I tell it, it sounds terrible, right? It just sounds like an awful story. Why would anyone believe this story? And to be honest, it's because not the words are not compelling, but the experience of living that story is powerful. It's a powerful story. 
it has been an effective story for those in power and privilege to keep that power and privilege. It's been very effective. And it has been an effective story to scare and frighten and terrorize those who don't have power and privilege. It is a powerful story, one way or the other. And those who are in power are like, yeah, this is the best story. Let's keep it up. And those who are struggling are like, well, I don't know any other way to survive except to try and play this game and live this story. There, it, this must be it. And the end of this story in which creator has ordained scarcity and you got to go take what's yours and be ready to fight, the end of that story is murder. The end of that story is violence and labeling and isolating. That is the destiny of this story. That's what we will do as we nurse this particular story. So let's live another one, huh? Let's do something else. In the words of the prophets known as Coldplay, no, I don't want to battle from beginning to end. I don't want to cycle, recycle, revenge. I don't want to follow death and all of his friends. Let's live a different story. So Jesus gives us some images of this different story. And they, they, are, they are interesting to me. Because if you look carefully, the thing that we sort of talk about in the beginning with kind of the, what are these anger responses and this different story, they're actually meant for different audiences. Note that this anger story is probably meant for those who are experiencing the crush and who are tempted to act out in the same kind of energy that the tyrants are sort of promulgating, and Jesus is like, no. You know, in the words of Audre Lorde, do not use the master's tools to try and dismantle the master's house. Great. But these images here are different because if you look, it says if you go to the temple and remember that somebody has something against you, if you're in this situation where someone is on their way to court, you go and get them. These stories are actually meant for those who are perpetrators. <laughs> and this is so freeing to me. It's also a little discouraging. It's freeing to me because if you look at it, Jesus is actually saying to those who have perpetrated things, take the initiative and make it right. Go make it right. It's actually asking people who are in the midst of perpetrating injustice, pay attention to your community. Look out. Look up. People are probably, maybe, suffering because of what you're doing. Look up. Find them. Make it right. And that doesn't mean that all of us are not susceptible to being a part of perpetrating injustice. I think we all are. But it is comforting in a sense that Jesus knows that those who have the power and privilege to be able to enact these certain things can go and they can interrupt. 
they can literally interrupt the process right there and say, no, we're going to make it right. We're going to make it right. But I'm also discouraged. I'm also discouraged because, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, for every one, you know, company, I think it's like Patagonia that basically decided recently, no more profits. <laughs> the world's on fire. No more profits. We just need to, we need to care for the earth. No more profits. For every one of those companies, there's every other company that exists. Who's just like, all the profits, more corporate profits, more, 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 more. Who cares how we're doing anyone wrong? We're providing a service. It's great. They're paying for it. Everything's fine. But I will end by saying that what I see in what Jesus is saying is a model in my mind or an image in my mind of a nonviolent life. When I look at these examples, when I look at the way that Jesus on one hand says, do not respond the way the tyrants do. And on the other hand, when I look at the way that Jesus says, go and take initiative to make things right, especially if you're on your way to the temple. I feel like Jesus is painting a picture of a life that is integrated. Where our beautiful and sacred acts of worship, of remembering God's presence and generosity and love are aligned with the impulse to make things right in the relationships in which we have struggled and are aligned with our desire to step away from the logics of an empire that will always seek to steal, kill, and destroy. We honor God. We remember that we are God's people. We seek out God's presence. And while we do that, and as we do that, we say no to violence, and we say yes to the impulse to make things right. And so we get to reject that story. We get to reject the notion that God has ordained scarcity because no, God has made you and I and all things to have everything we need. And so as we reject violence and we choose shalom, we are participating in the way that God has already done that. We are participating by making sure that our relationship with creation is mutual and consensual. That our relationship with creation is about giving and receiving. You do not have to shame or condemn or cast off anyone or anything in order to justify taking something that doesn't belong to you because you have everything that you need and everyone else believes that too. This is the vision of a nonviolent life. And it assumes, Jesus assumes that we'll mess up. How comforting. We are not actually expected to get it right. 
but we are invited to make it right. Friends, the way of nonviolence is one in which our nearness and loyalty to Jesus, our experience of a generous creator, is always in conversation with how we are tending to our relationships with the community of creation. How we are saying yes to shalom and saying no to violence. I'll read the words of Grace Lee Boggs one more time. Nonviolence respects the capacity for human beings to grow. It gives them the opportunity to grow their souls. And we owe that to each other. Should we, shouldn't we all have the opportunity to grow? to experience life, to reap and to sow, to find joy. I'm gonna give us a moment to pause to consider what God's invitation might be to you and to us. And then we're going to sing a song together. Let's take a minute. God, thank you that you are continuing to teach us this thing. <laughs> and Jesus, thank you that you have opened up for us and in us a way to be near to you and to creator as we renounce the ways of violence the impulse and temptation to isolate and label and take on the communal responsibility 
of making things right. God, would you show us how to put our energy in that direction? And would you remind us that you have indeed made all things to have everything they need? And God, as we live out that story with the story of scarcity, melt away. <laughs>